welcome to the Yale Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondek, and today I'll be speaking with Trita Parsi, a single roll of the dice, Obama's diplomacy with Iran. Trita Parsi is president of the National Iranian American Council and a former public policy scholar at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. He is frequently consulted by Western and Asian governments on foreign policy matters. Trita Parsi, welcome back to the Yale Press Podcast. Thank you for having me. There. We last spoke four years ago when Yale released your book, Treacherous Alliance, The Secret Dealings of Israel, Iran, and the United States. One of the things you mentioned in that interview was that the Iranian government wanted George W. Bush to win the 2000 election, a sentiment that was probably shared at that time in Jerusalem. What were the reactions in Tehran and Jerusalem to Barack Obama's win in 2008? It was very interesting to see how uh, the differences were so sharp. In Iran, there was a mixture of excitement, uh, some hope, but also some cynical worry in the sense that they saw in Obama a person that they could relate to more, someone that they felt did not have any baggage, um, someone that seemed to speak uh, in manners that was more respectful and more open to the idea of having uh, a real negotiation with Iran. At the same time, on the cynical side, there was a lot of worrying on the Iranian side in the sense that is this a person who really can shift around America's policy? Will he be strong enough to be able to make those changes? Because as I write in the book, there is an institutionalized enmity on both sides. It's not as simple as just changing a couple with things and then suddenly this relationship can be resolved. It's going to take a lot of work and a tremendous amount of willpower on both sides again. In Israel, however, you had a much more um, a categorical view of Obama in the sense that there was a lot of worrying about his positions on the Israeli-Palestinian issue, the fact that his father is Muslim, the fact that he had made statements prior to becoming a candidate in which he expressed a lot of sympathy for the Palestinian side, the fact that he had been a champion of diplomacy with Iran and Syria since 2007, uh, and the fact at the end of the day that the Israelis really didn't know that much about him. So in Israel, there was not much excitement at all. And don't forget that on the other side, you had someone like John McCain, who the Israelis were far more comfortable with, who also shared views in regards to the preference for preemptive tactics uh, and things of that nature. So between McCain and Obama, it was very clear that the Israelis favored McCain, at least at the elite level. Whether the same is true at the public level or not uh, is a different matter. As you point out in the book, uh, there are many actors on the world stage who were and still are resistant to any thawing of relations between Washington and Tehran. Do you think President Obama was fully aware of the pushback he'd received from this diplomatic outreach? I think he underestimated it, but I also think that he made some miscalculations along the road on how to deal with this. But it was very interesting to see that from the very minute he came into office, he was signaling to the Iranians that he is interested in having uh, a real diplomacy with them, a real negotiation, and trying to find a solution not only to the nuclear issue, but to the entire conflict between the United States and Iran. But from that very outset, there was pushback from Israel, from Saudi Arabia, from several elements in Congress. And reality is that even though he had a Congress that was democratic in the House, democratic in the Senate, he really couldn't count on Congress, including his democratic allies there, to support him to the extent that he needed. Moreover, when democratic um, leaders in Congress actually uh, tried to support him and reached out to the White House, uh, the White House was oftentimes 
uh, not very responsive. In fact, at times, there seemed to have been a decision at the political level in the White House that they prefer not to have a national conversation about Iran, period, that they would just do what they were trying to do and try to fly under the radar. And it really didn't work that well. In the book, you talk about how the U.S. wanted to start its dialogue with Iran with what you call a confidence-building measure. Could you describe what this was and what Tehran's initial response to it was? The confidence-building measure was that the Iranians needed fuel for their uh, research reactor in Tehran that produced medical isotopes for about 850,000 cancer patients. The United States came up with a pretty clever idea that instead of selling the Iranians uh, fuel for that reactor, we would take their own low-enriched uranium, re-enrich it, and then turn it into fuel pads. That way, the Iranians would get the fuel that they needed, and the West would make sure that the stockpile of low-enriched uranium was significantly reduced. If that worked, then a confidence confidence would have been built between the two sides, and there would be a better atmosphere uh, to be able to continue negotiating And perhaps most importantly, the Obama administration could show a very skeptical domestic audience in Washington that diplomacy had yielded something very strategic. And that would create more space for the administration to continue negotiations on the more hard issues of the nuclear file, as well as the other files. Um, Initially, the Iranians agreed in principle to that proposal at a meeting held in Geneva on October 1st, 2009. A follow-up meeting is held in Vienna in uh, October 20th, 2009, in which they go into the details of this. And at the level of the details, the two sides cannot reconcile because the Iranians believe that the formula that the United States and Russia had put forward, which essentially was that the Iranians would give up their LEU in uh, in one shipment, and they would get back the fuel pads approximately 9 to 12 months later, that that formula put all of the risk on the Iranian side. Mindful of the fact that the Iranians distrust the West as much as the West distrusts Iran, the Iranians were suggesting that there would be uh, segmented shipments, so that there would be perhaps three shipments, in which the Iranians would give up some LEU, and in return they would uh, instantaneously get fuel. Uh, There were both political and technical reasons as to why the United States cannot accept that. But over the course of about two and a half days, they did not manage to bridge that gap. Uh, The Iranians never came back with an affirmative answer to the American proposal. The U.S., of course, did not accept the Iranian proposal. And at that point, essentially, diplomacy falls apart. A couple of weeks later, the president decides to activate the sanctions track and increase pressure and sanctions on the Iranians. And we have been on that track ever since. Early on during the Iranian Green Revolution in 2009, uh, President Obama made a concerted effort not to come down on either side. Uh, How was this decision of his viewed by Iranian society? Well, the thing is that over the course of the summer, uh, the reaction to that decision varied. In the beginning, in my interviews with people from the Green Movement, and I'm talking about people who were in Musavi's headquarters on the day of the elections and were senior advisors to him, um, they say that they believe that uh, the Obama administration did absolutely the right thing of not taking sides. But they also started to become increasingly worried as to why the Obama administration did not say anything about the human rights abuses. Moreover, 
once it was clear that the Obama administration was still pushing for negotiations, a lot of the people within the Green Movement started to become concerned that perhaps Obama would sell uh, the Iranian people's human rights down the river just to be able to get a nuclear deal. So there was also a lot of concerns and suspicion on the Iranian side and the Green Movement side vis-a-vis -vis Obama. In retrospect, though, I think it was correct not to intervene and make this an American issue, but a much stronger and much more consistent and persistent profile on human rights, I think, would have been serving both the United States and the Iranian people much, much better. So do you think the Iranian people are justified in being concerned that the Obama administration is only concerned in Iran's nuclear capabilities and not about their human rights? No, I think um, there, there's two factors there. On the one hand, I think the Obama administration was cautious not to undermine the ability to negotiate by speaking too much on this issue. On the other hand, I think also the Obama administration consistently has not had a very high priority for human rights in Iran. So between human rights and the nuclear issue, the nuclear issue has consistently taken a higher precedent for the Obama administration as well as for many of the European countries. And, and this is not something that they necessarily would deny. Uh, they make it quite clear that they have a national security concern about the nuclear program, whereas the issue of human rights from their perspective is very grave, but it's more of a value concern rather than a national security concern. Back in 2007, uh, we spoke about the need to parse Iranian statements that were coming out of the government and that some of the more bellicose statements one would hear weren't exactly statements of position but an attempt to play to the Arab street. How have the popular revolutions in the Arab world affected Tehran's geopolitical calculus and its ability to get its message out? I think everyone's geopolitical calculus uh, in the Middle East has been affected by this, at least in the sense of having to reassess much what they're doing. And for the Iranians, I think, at least in the short term, it's been a, a pretty big negative because uh, much of Iran's soft power in the region was based on its ability to be one of the few, if not the only country in the region that was perceived as standing up to the U.S., standing up to the Israelis, uh, and essentially um, take advantage of a lot of the Arab frustrations that existed amongst the uh, Arab populations. After the spring, however, you have a very different scenario. You have a situation in which, for, on the first hand, uh, some of these countries are getting their own governments in which the distance between the public opinion and the foreign policy is going to be far less. You also have now an Arab population that probably feels more confident and assertive about their views because they've been able to significantly impact their own future. That makes them less vulnerable and less uh, exploitable. Um, and at the same time, you have countries like Turkey who has emerged, who in some senses have taken a page out of the Iranian playbook and have used um, their resistance or their position against Israel very cleverly to be able to score a lot of points in the Middle East. So with the soft power uh, foundation of the Iranian state being jeopardized by this, it's going to be very interesting to see how the Iranians react going forward. One of the more interesting parts of the story is that the diplomacy ended up being reinvigorated by Turkey and Brazil. Could you talk about what their contributions to the process were and were these contributions appreciated in Washington? I think it's a very good question because it's one of these episodes that shows that diplomacy actually did work. The problem is that by the time it worked, uh, Washington had abandoned and moved uh, in the sanctions direction. 
When Washington essentially gave up on diplomacy and started the second track, even though the argument was that we had a dual-track policy, the reality was that once we started the, 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 the pressure track, we were not pursuing diplomacy any longer. We were only negotiating with our allies about Iran. We were not negotiating with Iran. And in that, uh, in that, you then had two states in the Security Council, Brazil and Turkey, who had a lot to lose from a confrontation, a lot to lose from um, uh, sanctions, and potentially a lot to gain if they could show their diplomatic acumen, stepping in, starting to negotiate, getting Obama's blessing at the end of the day of trying to get the Iranians to agree to the original deal. And they go to Iran on May 16th, 2010, uh, President Lula of Brazil and later on Pres uh, Prime Minister Erdogan of Turkey joins them. After 18 hours of negotiations, they managed to get the Iranians to agree to the very same benchmarks that the U.S. had put on the table together with Russia back in October 2010. Now, the Iranians agreed to it. There was some variation to the deal. There were also some fa changes on the ground that the U.S. was not happy about. But they managed to do this, and they're very triumphant, and they think that they've resolved the issue. To their surprise, however, the U.S. declares immediately that it rejects the deal and that it's going forward with sanctions. What the Brazilians and the Turks did not know was that two days before Lula arrives in Tehran, Russia and China had agreed to sanctioning Iran. And between going forward with the sanctions agreement and actually getting the diplomatic victory that Obama had initially pursued, the administration chose the sanctions path. And they did so partly, if not largely, because they had run out of political space, Congress was coming at the administration as a steamroller demanding sanctions. And there was a fear in the administration that if they agreed to the deal, Congress would nevertheless go forward with sanctions and the U.S. would end up having a conflict with the other states in the P5. So finally, how would you describe the current state of negotiations between the United States and Iran? Uh, right now, I don't think there is much diplomacy to begin with. And I think the problem is that there isn't a willingness to fight for the type of political space that is needed in order to make sure that negotiations of this kind can succeed. Because we're talking about a negotiation between two countries that have had enmity with each other for the last three decades. To make negotiations like that succeed, in previous cases, we have had to have at least four years of talks to actually get to a final solution. It took four years to normalize relations uh, with Vietnam, for instance, uh, between 1990 and 1994. To get Libya to give up its nuclear program took actually exactly seven years of negotiations. So to expect that this issue could get resolved after just a few meetings in October 2009 is quite um, optimistic. It's not going to work. Uh, and uh, to muster that political will for negotiations um, has not been something that we can say that we have seen in either Iran or in the U.S. I think there's been a lot of genuine willingness for negotiations, but it's not been matched by the willingness to take a risk for peace. Tuta Parsi, the author of A Single Roll of the Dice, Obama's Diplomacy with Iran. Thanks so much for coming back on the Yale Press podcast. Thanks so much. A Single Roll of the Dice, Obama's Diplomacy with Iran, is on sale now. For information on ordering printed books or on ebook availability, visit our website, www.yalebooks.com.
Don't forget you can follow the press on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Yale Press. On Twitter, where we are at Yale Press. If you'd like to read our blogs, those can be found at yalepress.wordpress.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to this show, the Yale Press Podcast, on iTunes, any other podcast aggregator site, or our website, www.yalebooks.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. Copyright 2012, Yale University Press. All rights reserved.